Hello and welcome to Carnivorous Chats. My name is James, your host. I started this podcast to help other folks share their own healing stories and to interview thought leaders and experts in the carnivore, keto, and low oxalate space. Before we begin, I'd like to give a shout out to Equip Foods and the Carnivore Bar. As an affiliate, you can use the link in the show notes to get a discount on their products when you check out using the code Carnivorous. Thanks in advance for listening, subscribing, and any likes or shares. And now, on with the podcast. want to say welcome to carnivorous chats and thank you thank you for writing this book we'll get into this in great detail but how are you doing today really well just got back from a long walk and went to the pub with the dogs and i'm back and relaxed so ready to go awesome jane once again thank you thank you for joining me and taking the time out of your busy schedule to chat with me today in what i consider and i mentioned to you on our practice yesterday that i really consider this piece of literature to be a seminal piece that folks will look back on as a voice in the wilderness of a plethora of plant-based advocacy and just some, you know, science fact-backed journalism that we just, I, I just am so appreciative of it. And I mentioned to you a little bit, and I'm just going to do a two-second spiel on my background and then allow you to take the floor because I'm so excited to hear from you, is that, as you know, I was a vegetarian for decades then a strict plant-based vegan for six years. It was about the fifth year, Jane, that my health really went off a cliff. And I searched everywhere to find answers as to what was happening to me, but there was nothing or very little to be found because everything was advocating for this plant-based agenda and that I wasn't doing it well enough or I wasn't doing it hard enough and I needed to quote unquote double down, which I did, and it very nearly killed me. So when I came across your book, since adding animal foods back into my diet, it was like this amazing aha moment for me and you took all the stuff that I had been listening to, put it all together in this book comprehensively, and just made, made it so much easier for folks to realize, you know, what the dangers can be associated with this and who and why these folks were advocating for this way of eating. So lastly, what I'll say is let's sort of attack this today if we can, Jane. You very aptly describe it as a three-legged stool. And, you know, the proponents have this three-legged stool, which they like to prop up and use as the basis for their arguments. Let's attack it from the angle of who and why first are advocating for this way of eating and understand that. So thanks again. Oh, well, it's great to be here. And thank you for your interest in the book. I'm, it's really gratifying to know that it is reaching people and, and that people are understanding the message and, and valuing the message. So that's great. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, they, who's advocating? Wow. It's, um, it's a lot of people. I mean, uh, where I usually start with that, because people recognize it um, very acutely, is corporations. I mean, that's a pretty easy one to grasp. Why would it be that we are hearing this message being pushed by large processed food companies, um, the likes of Unilever or indeed the new kids on the block, the people that are in, have invented alt meats and, and vegan foods, etc. Well, there, there's no um, secret that that is all about growth, market growth and profit, which is, of course, the, um, the be all and end all for those um, corporations acting in the private sector. So it's no surprise what, that when they cotton on to something which appears to be opening up an entirely new market sector, they're going to go for that completely and utterly throwing everything on board, everything they can, all of their marketing expertise, all of their money, 
And they will be parroting these um, plant-based arguments, perhaps because they believe them, but also because they're just damn good marketing for them. So I think that that is, most people can see that that's what's happening, even if they are getting occasionally sucked into that uh, on the corporation front. Um, the, uh, the way the media then takes that and runs with it, the way the media has become an actor in this game instead of just a reporter is another um, element of, of, of why it's so strong, the message. Um, so, you know, there are, are studies that come out literally every week, perhaps even four or five times a week from all over the world from these nutrition departments at universities. Most of them are not very good. 80% of them, according to John Ioannidis, are not worth the paper they're written on and they don't prove what they purport to prove. Um, but what, what we see is a vast number of these, um, these nutrition departments conducting studies which are slanted towards the plant-based outcome, whether they've been funded. Sometimes that's the case. They've been funded by, um, say, uh, the likes of Unilever or, or a, a similar company, and therefore... Um, those those outcomes have to be that has to influence the 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 mindset and the outcomes and the direction of those studies just a little bit, um, or maybe it's the biases of the researchers themselves. Maybe it's the biases of the people on the board. Whatever the case, we're seeing a massive number of these studies come out that purport to say things like, "You can live 20 years longer, 10 years longer if you're on a plant-based diet." That kind of thing, or you know, you can prevent heart attacks on a plant-based diet. Um, and I looked at dozens and dozens of those studies, and I looked at the newspaper headlines, uh, which had been written on the basis of those studies, and they never said, not a single one that I could find said what the authors said it said. So they proved nothing of the sort. You know, there were either data inconsistencies, methodological issues, or just simply abstracts that didn't match the data, right, of the study. And newspapers, unfortunately, journalists are short of time. They don't really read beyond the abstract, and possibly they don't even read beyond the, uh, the press release. So if you're getting a press release that gives you the fodder for a great headline, like vegan women will live 50% longer than, than their counterparts, um, their omnivore counterparts, you're going to run with that headline because it's splashy and, and exciting, and they need to fill newspaper newspaper pages right so again i think perhaps when when everybody sits down and just gives that a little thought they'll realize ah that's why the media is on board that's why they're pushing the message the the um and please stop me if i'm going on too long about this this particular not, not at all not at all jane please the one that really hits people um and takes them by surprise is the idea that the the um Seventh-day Adventist church might be involved in some way or that it might be the origin of all of these messages. Um, certainly in the UK, we don't know much about that church. Um, and for your listeners who maybe haven't read as much as you have or who are not familiar, it was a church founded by Ellen G. White in 1863 in, in Battle Creek um, in America. And basically, Ellen G. White um, declared that she had had visions from God which dictated that people should be eating the Garden of Eden diet, which was largely, it was plant-based. It was maybe vegetarian, but it anyway excluded meat for sure. And 
so that was the foundation of that religion. Now, why do we care about that today? It's just some crazy religion none of us have to be worried about, right? The problem is that from that point, the religion that the, the STA church developed so much influence in America and then all around the world as a consequence of that influence in America. So for instance, protégés of, um, of Ellen Z. White were, you know, John Kellogg, and then Lena Cooper. Lena Cooper became the leading um, dietitians expert in America in the 30s. She wrote the textbook that dietitians went, uh, um, used. Those guidelines then became uh, embedded along with a lot of Seventh-day Adventist people in the, um, the guidelines process in America. And then, you know, you look forward all the way to 2019 when a quite famous study came out by Marco Springman, which declared all plant-based foods to be superior to animal foods, both in health terms and in terms of their impact on the environment. And you look below the surface and you see that that was peer-reviewed by a leading academic at a Seventh-day Adventist university. So this is happening today. Mayor Adams has appointed somebody in charge uh, to be in charge uh, in New York of the hospital system who has a Seventh-day Adventist background in, in terms of um, her link with the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, which really is a front for Seventh-day Adventists and vegetarian and uh, plant-based um, advocacy. So if we think we don't need to be afraid of this, what people might call a crackpot religion, we do because it's having influence on policy like that, New York schools and hospitals, right? So that's a pretty formidable set of forces that are acting. You throw in the WHO, the WEF, all these sort of um, uh, large elite global organizations who have their own interest in pushing this, the control element, which goes with the plant-based diet. And then you have something which is uh, really very, very hard to fight and hard to argue against. Jane, I should preface before we go on a little bit further, and thank you for that. That's really excellent, um, that you are an omnivore and still and are not out to, uh, you know, sort of persuade folks not to eat vegetables. And in fact, it's quite the opposite. You know, if we, as we get along on our, our chat today, you, you advocate for people just eating whole foods, not processed foods. And that includes vegetables in the diet mm -hmm. as well. Um, and I'm, I'm a big believer of that, of, of that as well. I tell folks, please do what works best for you. I often tell folks when they ask me why I don't eat many vegetables, if any, anymore, it's because I ate enough as a vegan and a vegetarian to last me a lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, so I wanted to just mention that because it's an important fact for you because you did not come at, at the angle to, to, to come across and be anti-vegan per se. You came at this to just try and quiet the the misconstruct and the, the misinformation that was out there surrounding this way of eating didn't you so let me just pick up the book once again for those those folks who have joined us it's a great plant-based con if you have not read it please get a copy jane part of my journey which was really interesting too is that i sort of fell into the vegan way of eating from vegetarian you know thinking it would do better for my health which we'll talk about the the, the fallacy in that later on but also because there was a lot of propaganda in terms of films out there. And I understand that you felt very strongly to write this book after the Game Changers film came out. I had already been a vegan for a few years at that point, and it just made me realize how people love to hear, you know, they often say, if, 
folks love to hear bad news about, you know, good news about their bad habits. And, mm. you know, you can, you can flip that. You want to hear good news about what you think are good habits, but they may not actually be good habits. And that Game Changers film was a, was a really powerful one, wasn't it? It was super powerful. And as you say, I had been thinking about this for a good six months or so before that. And I was aware of the misinformation and I, I, I was trying to work out why and how it was so strong and why that anti-meat messaging was becoming so loud. And, but, but seeing that film was a tipping point. And it's probably that that made me think I should write a book. Um, it, I'm not just going to write a series of articles. I'm not just going to keep writing to editors of um, journals and saying your study is not correct and all of the things I had been doing. I was just going to put it all in one place because I found that movie to be very dangerous and I saw its potential to ruin an entire generation's health because people really suckered in. In fact, I, I uh, heard one of your podcasts with somebody and I can't remember who it was, but they said they were hook, line and sinkered by the vegan message. And I think game changers really hook, line and sinkered people in a big way, right? So it needed to be done. And by the way, there were already people working on that. Um, when I decided to write my book, there were people who had done really comprehensive critiques of that film. And one that I reference all the time is by this nutritionist called Tim Reese, who I really admire. He dissected every single study in that film. And he showed that the studies did not did not prove what the film's directors and, and editors uh, said that it proved. So it was in no way, that evidence presented was in no way support for an all plants, only plants diet. Sure, vegetables are good in, in moderation, some vegetables for some people, others for other people. And, and you're right. I love vegetables. Last night we had a curry here, which I made. It was a purely vegetable curry. My husband had the beef on the side. I didn't bother yesterday, but another day I would. Um, so I am super fond of vegetables, but I can also see the total fallacy in a vegetable only existence. Amazing. Jane, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but you were you were interviewed in a, by a fantastic uh, podcaster and uh, Brian Sanders from yeah. the Peak Human podcast. Have you ever seen his debunking video he did of Game Changers? Yes, it's out on YouTube. Yeah. He did he did a fabulous job with that as well. I thought. Yeah, he he and he continues to do a fabulous job uh, debunking things all the time. Yeah. yeah, yeah, really, really important guy to have in this yeah. space. Jane, Jane, talk to us a little bit. I, I know there was some pushback from your publisher on the actual title title and. The interesting thing is, is as you've gone along and been interviewed, you've realized how many things use the word con in as a base of a word. Things like controversy, consensus, conditioning of persuasion you talk about. How difficult was it to get this title for this book out there? Well, funnily enough, there were quite a lot of difficulties with my publisher, but the title wasn't one of them. Uh, now, uh, it, 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 so they wanted to keep it essentially because they understood my message, but they were they were wary of con in the traditional sense. So because this really isn't about the con man at the center of things, pulling strings and handing out money to people to do things. It's way more complicated than that. So we did settle on the idea that it's a maybe an unintentional con, a sort of uncoordinated, but happens to end up coordinated con. It's the confluence of a bunch of interests that ends up therefore looking very much like a traditional con that's intended. So they were, they were, they, they liked the title, 
they wanted to keep it, but they wanted to make sure that people understood what we meant by it. Um, now, there were other difficulties with the book that the publisher did have, which was, you know, we spent a long time in legal review, a year in legal re review, going over every single line to make sure that um, people would not have cause to say that I had lied about them or that I had exaggerated or that, that I had caused harm to their business or any of those things. So that was a pretty torturous process. And at some points during that process, I feared that we would never get the book out, but we did. And my publishers were actually really, really brave and really helpful on that in the end. Thank goodness for them. And thank goodness yeah. for you, as I mentioned before, Jane, you, you've made some great analogies on how, the plant-based messaging being as pervasive as it is out there. And I mentioned to you offline that when I was ill and, and a vegan, that no matter where I searched, everything was pushing me back towards this plant-based is the best for your health. And you've often talked about it as a machine and looking under the hood to see what actually is going on. You know, the car can look beautiful, but unless you have the car facts as they have in the US, you know, you don't know how, what the engine history is like and what it looks like underneath. So let's start to take a little bit of a closer look at what that means for folks. I wanna start by this um, leg of the stool and that is the, the push that plant-based eating is healthier for you as an individual. And I'm gonna give my anecdotal and of one evidence that yeah. I don't think it is mm -hmm. because I did everything correctly in my opinion, Jane. And, and as, as I was told, my wife actually became a vegan chef she cooked all whole foods, plant-based from fresh garden. We didn't have any processed stuff. Um, mind you, we now knowing the, the, the bad seed oils that are in a lot of the butters and milks and nut milks and the, the toxins, which we'll get into, but my health and, and excuse me, we even supplemented on the diet quite rigorously because I knew I would be deficient in B12. I knew that there were other things that weren't been there after my research. However, again, learning from you and learning as I went along, my health still went off a cliff. Mm -hmm. And when I had blood work drawn, my Krebs cycle, for those that don't know, your Krebs cycle, sort of, you know, all your main vitamins and minerals and amino acids was severely deficient in all the ones we know that we can find in animal foods. Mm. So let's talk about those. What on a plant-based diet are we deficient in if we, if we go that route? Wow. So, I mean, there are so many things <laughs> that you get less of, not enough of, or none of on a on a plant and a plants only diet so i think we can we can exclude vegetarianism to a certain extent because you can get more nutrients from that but if you're totally cutting out everything plant, animal food related you know you're going to be short on vitamin a vitamin d3 because it doesn't even exist in in plant foods um dha epa which are these fatty acids which are so essential to brain function um B12 non-existent, uh, so you have to supplement, and there are big questions about whether or not supplementation actually delivers the, the right amount in the right form of B12. Um, a lot of the B vitamins, the other B vitamins as well. Um, so, and, and you don't get um, fats quite a lot of the time, healthy fats, uh, which assist with the fat-soluble vitamin intake and digestion. Um, so those are sort of from the nutrient angle. So I always think that the argument really here is you, you miss out on many nutrients and you get an excess of anti-nutrients. So those things that I know you've spoken to Sally Norton about, her fantastic book, Toxic Superfoods, 
Um, she has delved into that subject uh, deeper than anyone I know. And there's somebody else actually who does a good job of that on the internet called Monique Adinger. But um, they have pointed out that when you have an excess of things like oxalates, which come from, say, spinach is a very good example, you get a complete overload in a normal serving, right? So if you're having that normal serving three times a day in a smoothie every day, you're probably going to get oxalate poisoning. You're probably going to end up with kidney stones, right? And that's probably what happened to you. Um, so that's just one one element of the plant toxin world that, that you get an overload of. So there's the, uh, so there's the, de the deficiency in nutrients, there's the excess of anti-nutrients, and then the other thing I always think about is protein. Uh, protein, people think, is, is the same whether it's plant or animal food, and it just isn't, as you know, because you talk about amino acids. So um, the, uh, the plant proteins tend to be short on some or several amino, essential amino acids that we need. Um, and what people don't realize is that we need to have all those amino acids working together in order for that protein to do its job in our bodies. They call it protein synthesis, but that's essentially protein doing its thing, right? Um, so if you're missing out on one of those, you might think, well, that doesn't matter. I'll get it somewhere else. But if you don't get it at the right time with, in the right combination with those other amino acids, then you won't get the benefit at all. So, uh, and proteins, uh, plant proteins are not as digestible. So, you know, if you're having a bowl of, of protein from, say, porridge or from peas or from some, some source, it's not going to be as digestible as, as the protein from beef or chicken or eggs. So you have to eat way more of it in order to get the same benefit. So those are just three of the kind of booby traps that I think the diet sets for us. Um, and I just think that the crime really in all of these articles which you say popped up on google every time you googled how to be healthy you would get all these articles right about eat lots of plants and things they don't warn people about this rarely they rarely warn people about this certainly the ones that pop up most often do not warn people about this it's really almost criminal my people know who know my journey and, and please forgive me if you haven't heard it before but the the end stage for me when i was at my worst i thought okay you know i was told i had to double down on this i found a physician online who was extolling the virtues of these green smoothies filled with spinach kale fruit and chia seeds which are also very high oxalate thank you sally for uh, you know wearing that and just blending those three things up three times a day and pounding them down and that would detoxify you and it very nearly killed me um it was and it, it is, you are absolutely right, Jane, it is dangerous. And at this juncture, I just wanna talk about your, you've talked about your singular purpose of writing this book is to stop children and young women in particular from harming their health. And you know, I'm, I'm an adult and I, I still nearly killed myself. I really you know, empathize and also really congratulate you for saying that because it's so important for kids because children, despite what we thought, they are not miniature adults. They need different dietary intakes, especially for brain development and things. Once you're an adult, you can make your own decisions, can't we? And we can, if people want to do that and they say that I'm supplementing and I'm, I'm doing it because of the animals, then fair on them. You've made that even though you know you're deficient in some things, but children don't know any better and specifically young women. Talk about that for us. Yeah, you're right that that was one of my primary motivations for writing the book and it remains 
is a very strong driving force for me. And in fact, what I'm working on now with a couple of organizations is how do we translate the messages in my book into something which is digestible, if you pardon the pun, uh, to young people. And one of the problems with that is um, you have to reach these young people where they're at. So you could talk all you want to a 13-year-old girl about the fact that if she goes on an exclusively plant-based diet, there's a very strong risk that she uh, will have trouble with fertility in her late 20s. Um, she's probably not going to hear that message because she really isn't worried about that. In fact, she's worried about how she looks, how to have her skin look better, how to be, how to do right by the animals, you know, how to help the environment. So you have, we have to reach these people where they're at. That is the number one. But how you do that, it's really interesting. I was at lunch the other day with uh, a family who's, we've known a long time, but I hadn't met their sort of 24 year old daughter. And I sat next to her at lunch and she, it transpired that she has had uh, Emmy um, which is the, the energy, you know, wasting disease. Um, she'd had it for seven years. And uh, she really, for a long time, she couldn't even get out of bed. Couldn't do anything except have her, you know, read, have her breakfast brought to her, maybe walk around the garden, that's it. And um, I, she seemed to be recovering, but um, it struck me that I wondered if anyone had, because she was a vegan, had anyone ever said to her at any point, this ME may be attached to your vegan diet? Now, I didn't feel at that lunch with a bunch of people with her parents around who were also vegetarian, I did not feel that it was my right to suggest that this might be her problem. But who does have the right? How do we get that message across? How do we get more information to people like that so that they ask themselves is it my diet? You know, how did you get to the point where you asked yourself? That's what we need people to do, to simply ask the question, right? Exactly, Jane. And another point that I want to ask you about is it's almost like, I, I don't know the exact percentage, but it's the minority now who are controlling things. You've often talked about how you've been interviewed by various television spots and you had they didn't want to include certain things because they were afraid of that, let's say 20%, it's the 80-20, it's the 20%. And I'm thinking to us, so how has this happened? How have the minority become this resonating voice overall when the majority of, us, majority of us understand, or at least I hope we understand now, what it takes to be healthy? How has that happened? Yeah, I, I, that's a very good question, but I think it's happening not just on the subject of diet, but on lots of subjects that the, and it's not even 80-20, it's, um, it's 87, it's sort of the 7% at most is vegetarian and 2% at most is vegan, right? So they, that little percentage of people, uh, they're dictating the messaging and they're dictating the conversation. And you're right, several radio stations refused to have the discussion at all because they thought it was just too sensitive. And there were others that uh, wanted the, the discussion shaped and certain subjects were off limits. And then there were others who were really brave. And I was so grateful to those people. And the bravery was found in some very, you know, um, unexpected places. Um, so, uh, you know, there are voices out there. There are outlets for people to, to give their version of, of a different narrative. Um, and I was lucky that I found some. 
But the the online debate has been a real revelation to me. Um, I don't know what your experience of anything beyond Instagram is. I, I don't know whether you you engage in Twitter arguments or whatever, but I have found myself involved in those arguments at times over the past year. And um, uh, what I have found is an amazing amount of support from some fronts. And there's a great community out there who really wants this message about the, the, the weaknesses of a plant-based approach to get out there. And they want to promote real whole foods, omnivore diets, you know, uh, good old fashioned real food stuff. But there's also um, a large um, element of um, advocacy for plant-based diets, which is very bitter, very nasty. And the discussion invariably tips over into the personal. So I get attacked very often on a personal level about my credentials, about whether I'm being paid by the meat industry, which I'm not, by the way. Um, uh, whether I'm a liar, whether I'm a, you know, and worse, there have been worse uh, accusations and some some kind of sexually explicit assault type um, aggression expressed. Now, all that has been, uh, I'm trying to work out, why does it tip over into that level of personal aggression? It, is it, what is going on in the minds of people who are very attached to veganism, vegan advocacy, what is going on that this is so, so sensitive that they feel they have to lash out and hurt somebody like me who has a different point of view? Jane, first of all, let me, you know, and here's your, you can actually ask a vegan. I don't know if a vegan has ever interviewed you before, but I was a vegan. Yeah. Um, and I can, I can tell you with my hand in my heart, I was never one of the attack mode vegans. I did currently as what I'm doing now, I extolled what I thought was right, but I later learned was incorrect. And the same way, and especially in the carnivore community, you know, once you get that vitamin B12 deficiency sorted, you sort of calm down. I've never been more calm than I have than eating more animal products. My whole, I was depressed. I was anxious all the time as a vegan. I was angry. If my wife was in the room, she would tell you I wasn't very fun to be around <laughs> at the end stages there. Um, so on behalf of all those folks, I apologize. And I was just looking before our interview today that even poor Professor Ben Bickman, you know, who has said outright, you know, that the, the vegan diet is impractical for human survival. They were attacking him. I mean, this doctor now who, you know, I have such a regard for like yourself and they're attacking him and his complexion and the way he looks. It's, it's sad, really. It's, it's, it's awful. And I don't know how he's handling it. I had a period of time when I just had to back off for two or three months. I just felt so vulnerable. And I thought, why should I do this? And I'm just getting back out there, to be honest, because I feel, okay, I need to take part in this debate. I need to move it forward. But I do try and protect myself by, by coming away. Once a discussion has reached that aggressive personal element, I just come off, I block the people, I go. That's it. That's it. I'm done. And I agree, I agree with you, Jane. And, and by the way, you, you let me know if anyone attacks. I'll... <laughs> I'll support you. <laughs> I protect this woman at all costs and God bless you for everything you've done. But um, I, I just, yeah, I, I don't understand the vitriol and the anger. Mm. It's like now with this, this page that I've created and I've re I'm receiving 
messages from so many folks thanking me like you for sharing my story that has been so lost in this space of those folks that had went vegan and their health got really, really bad and are either ashamed to talk about it, that they were wrong, or afraid to talk about it because they're going to get shouted down. And just like you now, yeah, I've had my few fair, fair share of messages now, you know, calling me a, a killer and how dare I, I was never really vegan. And I just, I'm like you, I move on. And I, I just plant my flag in those folks that messaged me and said, you know, you've changed my life. I thank you for that. And, you know, I thank you for that. You have changed my life with this book and I'm sure countless others. So please thank don't you. be deterred. Don't be mm -hmm. deterred. Okay. Thank you. Jane, we've, we've talked a little bit about that one leg of the stool. Let's go on to, if we can, that sort of next one and the, the famous one that they prop themselves up with, and that is the environment. Oh, and if that was to them, what a uh, gift. Oh boy. <laughs> well, you know, and I was one of them, Jane, I was one of them, you know, when at, at the time when I had my end stages, even when I was sick and Greta Thunberg was out there and extolling the virtues and we're all going to hell in a handbasket because of the cows. And as you aptly say, it's not the cow, it's the how and the wrong the vilification, you know, they're accountable for some, but they, you know, shouldn't be charged with the full law. Yeah. Um, let's go into looking at that when we look under the hood on that argument of, you know, the environmental impact. What are some things we should look out for? Okay. Well, the biggest thing, I think two of the things that are talked about on the environmental front most are um, emissions, so uh, carbon emissions uh, or methane emissions, and then water use. Um, seems to be the main obsession. Um, land use is also uh, a fairly big issue. But if you look at the argument around emissions, so there's a constant, um, um, constant refrain that cows emit methane, they're causing, some people say 50% of all emissions, some people say 25%. Um, the actual official number, as you probably know, and you're, you're um, your community probably knows is 14 and a half percent globally but detractors will say well that doesn't include everything that's got to be wrong that's way too low in fact there's so much evidence that that is way too high as a number okay so a it's a global number it does not apply to places like the united states and the united kingdom where the emissions from cows are half or less as a percentage of our economies okay but also it is an overstated number for several reasons it's based on an accounting system which without getting super technical is called dwp 100 which leading experts like miles allen at oxford university who's a climate change scientist he's a physicist he has said that that overstates the emissions from stable herds of cows by three to four times Okay, and and cows are stable. Cow herds are stable in countries like yours and mine. Okay, so that's one key way that these emissions are overstated in terms of their impact on warming. Um, the other thing, which is rarely uh, accounted for, is the sequestration side of the equation. So yes, cows emit methane, but they also absorb that in the form of the carbon that they can help the ground to absorb in return. So it becomes this biogenic cycle. And provided the herd size is the same, that doesn't change. That doesn't increase or decrease. It, the warming doesn't, the additional warming is non-existent. So there are all these nuances to this story, which I mean, if I ever hear 
please tell me if you ever come across a journalist who's writing about that, because all you ever hear is the is the single narrative, right, about emissions. So people should be aware that the story is more nuanced. Now, as you say, that doesn't mean that cows are off the hook. It doesn't mean that we can't improve things, because if regenerative ways of farming cattle are the best way in order to sequester carbon and minimize damage and improve soil health, we need to move all of our systems towards that regenerative way of doing things. And clearly there are farms that aren't, aren't farming that way. So there is potential for improvement for sure. Um, so, you know, that's, that's one of the main elements. The other one is funny, it was top of mind for me now about water use because it's always, oh, cows are water hogs. They're draining the earth of water, etc. And um, of course, the reality is 95% of what most cattle use in terms of water is rainwater from the sky. It comes, it falls on the grass. It would fall on the grass whether the cows were on it or not. It just so happens that the cows are there, so they're eating the grass and they are therefore using that water, but they're also giving it back in the form of urine. And so there we have another cycle which happens with cattle, which is rarely recognized. And in fact, there was a really interesting discussion on Twitter the other day, and there's so many smart people out there digging and digging at the numbers, which I, I just think is fantastic that people spend the time to do this. So somebody, did an analysis of the water used by for beef versus pea protein, uh, which of course is in all these alternative meats and peas themselves. And of course, beef came out using less water because when you actually analyze how that water is used and what type of water it is, um, you get to a much more realistic view um, of, of, of water use. Now, if you want to talk about water use, almonds are the worst offenders, right? So so if you're, it, it makes me laugh all the time. Nuts in general are a very terrible offender. And yet these organizations such as the Eat Lancet and most in fact of our health guidelines want us to eat loads of nuts and seeds. Okay, so you're gonna have a lot of nuts that's gonna use a lot of water. You're gonna have a lot of seeds so you're gonna have ox, oxalate poisoning that could end up land you in hospital. I really do not see the benefit of a nuts and seeds kind of rich diet myself in either environmental or health terms. You know, that that almond example is a really crazy one, Jane. Well, how much, again, like one almond has how many liters of water? I think you've said that before. I think it was 25 liters for one oh. almond. Yeah. 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 I yeah. think I, that's what I had written down from one of listening to one yeah. of your interviews. And I was just astounded by that amount. Yeah. Not, not to mention the fact that we know how harmful they, because they're using these bees to pollinate the almond trees and it, it's really harming our global bee population as well. I mean, there, there is a saying in sort of the, the meat-based community and or the advocacy for eating, you know, uh, more saturated fat than we had been advised to in the past mm -hmm. is, you know, we, we are, you know, we are blaming salt for what the sugar did. We're, you know, all these things to our health and, you know, we're, mm -hmm. we're blaming uh, butter for what the seed oils have done. Yeah. But also I looked at it and I thought, you know, we're now blaming livestock for what the fossil fuels have done. Yeah. And, you know, we have these big conferences that are talking about the global pandemic and you have these wealthy to do folks flying in on their private jets and then advocating for a plant based diet. And you've very eloquently put it. It's like, why are they pushing this, 
you know, you have to go plant-based when we are not recognizing the damage the fossil fuels have done for years and years. It's because it's the ease factor. You know, people can look like the part of the solution to global climate change by taking the meat off their plate. Yeah, yeah. It seems like ease is exactly the right word. It does seem, even to me, like the easiest thing to do. If I didn't know what I know about the, the nutritional value of meat and the importance of animal foods to our health, it would seem easy to me because it's a heck of a lot easier to decide not to eat meat than it is to say, I'm not going on holiday, I'm not gonna drive a car, I'm never gonna fly and see my family, you know, all of those things. Those are almost um, insurmountable challenges for many of us to think about. And that's why everyone is latched onto this diet thing. And then, you know, they're fueled by all the propaganda. So it just rolls and rolls and rolls the story. Yeah, we, we get caught in this cycle. And it's, you know, when, when, I was, when I was a vegan, as I mentioned to you, I loved to hear good news about what I was doing. But the problem was there, was there wasn't your voice in the wilderness there saying, well, hold on a minute. Let's start questioning this. Is this actual fact? Is this, is this actually the healthy way to eat? Is this actually better for the planet? I know you, are, you know, one of the reasons, Jane, and this is, again, this goes to that sort of third prop leg of the stool, yeah. is the, the, the welfare of animals. And I, I was a big believer. I watched Cowspiracy. I watched Dominion, those films. And the scenes are, they are horrific. And you cannot help but empathize and then feel if you take the animal protein off your plate that maybe you're helping for an animal like that to suffer. And you often talk about, and I didn't realize until I investigated after this fact in reading your book was, it was a lot to do with the chicken and pig farming that really pushed this on folks. And they are, are you know, cows, yeah, they have a pretty bad go of it if you're in a feedlot system, but the worst off are the chicken and pigs, aren't they? We, should, we actually should be thankful to the vegans for push, putting that out there and showing us. Absolutely. We should be thankful for all of those uh, organizations, vegan or otherwise, that, that pushed the message about animal welfare and opened our eyes and you know, we would never have known to demand organic chicken, free range chicken and, and free range pork and all of that thing, that if we hadn't seen some of those scenes. That said, of course, we need to back off from that now and think how representative are those terrible farms and uh, how, um, how many good farms are there and how can we make that shift happen so that all of these animals have, have a decent life while we are caring for them. Um, you get when you when you talk about that. I mean, there's a um, there's a very famous study by um, Steve Davis. I think it's Steve is his first name Davis in in 2003, and he did a calculation about what would cause the least harm to animals, a vegan diet or an omnivore diet, and he came to the conclusion that the omnivore diet caused the least harm in terms of both deaths and a quality of life for the animals. Because um, he, he was pointing out, and many others have pointed out this too, that in the course of, of, of farming um, our crops and trying to get enough of those um, uh, crops to sustain us, we do kill a lot of animals. We kill them inadvertently, accidentally, or sometimes intentionally because we have to get rid of them in order to protect the crops. So mice, for instance, or rabbits. Um, so he was asking us to really set aside the idea that we're killing fewer animals just because we don't eat those animals. Um, that said, I do understand 
understand if people say, okay, I understand that. I understand that we accidentally kill animals or that I might be causing harm to animals by eating a plant-based diet, but I just can't face eating that meat. I can't face eating that animal. If a person like that goes, makes that decision, knowing exactly what um, they're doing, accepting how that might impact their health, taking all of the precautions that they possibly can in order to prevent those things happening to their health. I have a lot of respect for that, and that's fine with me. If you don't want to eat meat from animals, fine. What I object to is the using of that argument as one of those three legs of the stool, as it were, to prop up everything else, the tying in of that argument as if it was making it an um, open and closed case for plant-based diets, which it, it isn't. And, and Jane, I give you all credit because I understand you've actually gone into some pre-set up debates to debate uh, plant-based folks. And mm. um, that must be a really interesting experience because, because you already know what the three sort of rebuttals will be and you have your argument against it. But inevitably what they ended up, they end up doing is just almost shout, you know, the loudest voice wins, you know, shouting you down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when I was looking up, you know, uh, prof professor and uh, Dr. Ben Bickman on a, a YouTube, one of the comments was, and, and you, I'm sure you've heard of this before, Jane, is the, the gish gallop in the debate. Have you heard of that? The gish gallop? Yeah. No, do tell me. G-I-S-H gallop. Um, it's a rhetorical technique in which each person in a debate attempts to overwhelm their opponent by providing an excessive number of arguments with no regard for their accuracy or strength. Yeah. <laughs> And I think that's probably what happened to you, isn't it, if I had to guess? You know, it happened to me at my very first book festival event, the, the week the book came out. And I was up against a guy who I later knew, realized had been funded by a lot of animal rights charities. And he was a professional, right? And he'd also written a book. And I read his book. And I thought by reading his book, um, I would understand his arguments. And so I came prepared to talk about those and talk about my own arguments. And he did the gish gallop. Is that what I call it? Gish gallop. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. He just, um, when I had given my presentation, he didn't give a presentation. He just attacked everything I'd said and threw out number after number after number to the audience. The audience was sort of goggle-eyed at all these numbers. They couldn't possibly appreciate whether they were correct or not. And he bamboozled people into thinking he had the right answer. And I think that is what happens an awful lot of the time. And I know um, uh, Nina um, Teicholz has been in a similar situation with vegan ad doctor advocates in the United States. And she does hold her own very well, but that same tactic is deployed against her and other, other people who are arguing the case. And it's, it's pretty hard to stay composed in those situations. I would imagine. Imagine so. And then some, another listener uh, commented on that it's clearly a vitamin B12 deficiency because once you get B12, you start to calm down. I know that happened to me, but I, yeah. again, I just hearken back to, uh, I, I, you know, I, at, at, when I was vegan, as a, a lot of vegans are at the time, it's a real point of pride because you feel you are doing right and you're extolling the virtues, you're saving the animals and the planet and you're doing all these things. But I never really understood the, the, the anger side and the pushing side, um, it seems to happen as people go further along on the diet and become really entrenched to where it intertwines into who you are as a person versus just a diet choice. Yeah. And 
that leads me into my sort of last point, and we've sort of talked about some of the framework on who's behind this, but you often say it's not a singular, there's no one really pulling the levers. It's how it's intertwined, mm -hmm. you know, between pharma, food, religion, and all these other sort of industries that create this big machine, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's the way it acts together, the way they discover that their interests are best served by cooperating together. Right. So you would have to say, OK, well, why does PepsiCo or why does Coca-Cola, which is a better example, what interest could they possibly have in promoting a plant based diet? Well, by aligning themselves with the uh, American College of Lifestyle Medicine and by using their sort of science, supposedly scientific institute, which is ILSI, to promote that, they are promoting those kinds of foods which are not which are plant-based, which um, have a lot of sugar in them, which allow for sugar, which allow for high carbohydrate intake. And they're steering away, steering everybody's thoughts away from whether sugar is damaging or not. So, you know, you know, Coca-Cola executives probably really don't care about meat or not meat per se. What they care about is how the argument helps their products to sell and to dominate the market. And so it's a very nice, convenient way. I mean, I was shocked by learning about how Coca-Cola had been involved with the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, which promotes vegan diets. Um, it's, it, it's a really insidious, insidious uh, relationship. And most people really aren't aware of it, which is why it's even more harmful. When you really start there, I had a young lady on here last week. Her name is Annabelle Smithson and she has a YouTube channel and she's absolutely fabulous. I really am a big fan of hers. And she used not only uh, adding more animal foods back into her diet. She's only about, I think, 25 or 26 at the mm -hmm. most. But we often the vegans calling it, call it getting red pilled like the, the Matrix when he took the pill and saw the world for what it was. And, mm -hmm. you know, your, your book is like a red pill moment. And the more you go down these rabbit holes, as she eloquently said, you can really get trapped in all these things. That like, oh my goodness, how deep does this deception go? It's it's pretty incredible. Did when you were doing the research for this book, Jane, did it really change? It must have changed things for you. You must have gone, oh my goodness, what am I finding out here? Yeah, um, in fact, it was quite depressing for a while to yeah. understand how deep it went and how widespread it was and how the forces all acted together and how. Uh, and you can become quite despondent if you think, oh my gosh, okay, so the whole of the processed food industry is lined up. The entirety of the WHO and the WEF and the UN and all of these global entities, including Eat Lancet, uh, all the newspapers are on the side because they're too lazy to investigate the studies. We've got all the nutrition departments of the universities which, which get their funding from these yeah. these companies or from, from these global organizations. How on earth do you break through? How do you stop it? And I take a little heart from uh, Zoe Harkham, who uh, you may have interviewed her, and she's a fantastic analyst and doctor and researcher. And she makes a point of uh, regularly dissecting every study that comes out. And she'll do a full sort of 10-page dissection of each one to show whether it does or does not say what it's supposed to say. And she just says, we've got to concentrate on the ground, the grassroots, the ground up, person by person, um, individuals doing what they think is best. You will not uh, win this battle if you try to um, unpick all of those connections 
in the con, as it were, what we've talked about as being the con. You can't attack it directly. They're too motivated to do this. If too many things to gain by, by promoting this message and too much to lose by having it die. So we just have to keep trying to reach people. And, young, and, and you do a great job of that. And um, there are others on who, who are talking directly to individuals and trying to save their health one by one. And uh, as I said to you earlier, my next step is to take this into schools and uh, to reach more young people uh, directly on, with this message. Very, very powerful, Jane. Folks, thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Before we wrap up, I always ask my guests a couple of fun, non sort of uh, discussion topics just to, just to find out more about the personal side of Jane Buxton. Uh -oh. but, folks, this is the book, The Great, Plant, the Great Plant Based Con. If you haven't uh, gone out, please go out and get it. And um, it, it's just an incredible read. And Jane has, it's, it's 500 odd pages, but it's fact-backed, evidence-researched. So please do go and get it. Jane, the first question I have for you is sort of, it's on topic, is after reading the book, did your, did your dietary choices change at all for you? After writing the book, I mean. Through the course of writing the book, yeah. I became someone who ate more meat, not because I loved it so much. As I explained earlier in the interview, I, I kind of prefer vegetables, if I'm honest. But, but I eat the meat and the, uh, because of the, um, what I know it gives me. And I, I know I need a certain amount of protein and a good protein every day. And I, I think very much about the future, about longevity, about my health and my resilience in, in the face of the years. And um, so, yes, I, I include more meat in my diet. I've always eaten a lot of cheese. I'm a complete cheese nut. So that, that didn't change. Me, me as well, Jane. I was so excited to be able to add real dairy back in my diet after years and years of missing it. And it was actually... It was tough to do at first because a lot of folks don't realize, especially if you come from a vegan uh, vegetarian background, your body isn't used to breaking down the meat and the enzymes. You stop. I had uh, bile insufficiency because I just wasn't eating fat. Yeah. I, had low, I had low stomach acid. I had pancreatic insufficiency because I was just eating this tons and tons of fibers and things that would spike my blood sugar, like all those juiced vegetables and fruit. Um, it was, it's just not a healthy way to eat. And folks don't realize that, but... I say that all to say is, it, you know, in addition to your, your advocacy for the young folks, I'm finding now the more t uh, folks, and I'm, I'm 50 years old now, and I'm speaking to um, some older folks, is it's so important, as you mentioned, as we get older, to have the protein intake to avoid things like muscle wasting, sarcopenia. And I look at my own parents, and, and I keep telling them, put some more meat on there, but they're still stuck in the mindset of meat bad, cancer. Uh, you know, it's... Yeah. And, and just whittling down and putting all these highly toxic plant foods. Did you, did you change, out of interest, um, and since talking to Sally Norton, did you change up any of your vegetables that you choose to I eat? I never eat spinach now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Why would you? It doesn't even taste great, but I used to eat it. I'd throw it into salads and things. Uh, I'd never had smoothies, but I would throw it. In. Now, why would you touch it? Have some broccoli or some kale instead and don't get the oxalates. <laughs> I agree, Jane. Um, what Jane and folks should also know that you know obviously this isn't the only book that you've written. You've been an author for many years, and then prior to that, worked in companies and helped them. I think with you said with your marketing arm of companies, weren't you? Helping them was that correct? Well, 
working on organizational structures and it was it was a field which was known as work-life balance which now has become something we all talk about but back in the year 2000 which is when I was I started a company that was focused on that um, it, it was kind of a new concept flexible working working from home now we all do it right we all yes. do that yeah Jane, what are some of the things that you, what does Jane Buxton enjoy in her off time? What are some of the things you like to do? When I was speaking to Sally, she, she likes to go to the theater and go to those type of things. What do you like to do, Jane, in your off time when you're not writing or researching? Yeah. Well, it, that's all changed because we've just moved um, to Wiltshire, which is in the countryside in the south, southwest of England after 30-something years of living in London. So we are, you know, I like to do what I did today in my off time. We walked across some fields with the dogs to the pub, had a nice glass of wine at lunch, and then walked back home. And right now I'm looking out at uh, ducks on my pond and deer on my hill. And so I'm really enjoying that whole immersing myself in a, in a beautiful surrounding kind of thing. Um, I love to read. We, you know, I'm one of the happiest days um, I've had here since moving was when I got to put up the bookshelves and fill it with my books. That made me so happy. So these are really simple things. There's nothing really exciting. I'm not skydiving and I'm not jumping out of planes or anything, but, but that's what I like to do. There's something to be said for simplicity, Jane, isn't there? Um, it sounds absolutely wonderful to me. I wish I could just look out your window myself, but I'm very lucky as well that I'm in Bermuda here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it sounds lovely. Um, what what is what are some of the books that you enjoy reading you know when you're not writing give us an example well um i am a big fan of uh, a lot of women writers actually margaret atwood i've read just about everything she's written i'm i read a lot of ann tyler in fact i just noticed as i arranged the books on the shelf it's there's a whole shelf full of ann tyler who um she's an american writer as you probably know and uh, she said a few years ago, because she's way over 70, she said she was never writing another book. And I was so heartbroken about that. But she did. She's written about three since. So that was fantastic. Um, and then I love to read short story collections. And I have a, a load of those as well. Curtis Sittenfield, people like that. Um, and the classics, you know, I will reread uh, The Great Gatsby every year, probably. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Last question, Jane. When you and you mentioned that you had a fantastic uh, veg curry last night, what is what are sort of your favorite places to go out and eat, and what do you enjoy eating? What's your favorite foods? Well, Indian would be one of my favorite foods, and I, I have said um, uh, my husband and I often talk because I have like a ton of cookbooks, and I said if I could only keep one, if somebody said you can only have one for the rest of your life, it would be that uh, Rick Stein's. Um, uh, Indian cookbook because uh, you can cook all kinds of dishes from authentic dishes from India um, uh, from that book so that's one of my favorite as for when we go out though I'll eat anything and we try lots of things we try Thai we have a you know a ordinary pub fare uh, if we're out here or um, you know Italian or whatever so I think eating out is for experimenting and doing what you may not do at home which is great Jane Buxton, thank you once again for your time. Thank you for everything that you've done in terms of the research and putting this book out. The Great Plant-Based Con is the book, folks. Jane, where can folks find you online and research a little bit more? And I now know because I got mine through the Amazon in the US. Yeah. Uh, my copy, it's available there now, correct? So I have a website which is really just pointing people to where to the references for this book and a few of the articles that have been written about it that's at janereesbuxton.com and i'm on twitter um 
under um, Jane Reese Buxton, uh, um, and people can message me there. And if it's a nice message, I'll reply. If it's nasty, I don't. So, uh, so that's uh, and I um, I've had some really great interactions with people via that that mode of communication. Incredible. Jane, thank you so much for your time. It has been an absolute honor to, to share this hour with you. And I think my listeners and the listeners in the future will find this very, very beneficial. And as I say, folks, please go out and get the book. It's important reading, regardless of where your dietary background is. Um, it's just important all around to, to understand the context of everything that's out there and the misinformation that is rife. And Jane's done an incredible job of putting it all together for us in an easy to pardon the pun, digest format. Jane, thank you and have a wonderful rest of the day. Best to you and your family. Thank you. Great to see you. And that's a wrap on this episode of Carnivorous Chats. If you've made it this far, I want to say thank you for listening and also thank you in advance for liking, subscribing, or sharing this episode. Thanks again to the good folks at Carnivore Bar and Equip Foods. Don't forget to check the link in the show notes to get a discount on their products. And also, don't forget you can book me for a 30-minute carnivore coaching session through Avero Health. Again, the link will be in the show notes. Until the next time, be well. <laughs>